Time again for Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Each month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee, anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This is your faithful host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse film discussion group, and I want to welcome both new listeners as well as loyal fans back to our show. Some films defy explanation and conventional approaches to analysis and must simply be experienced and absorbed with no guarantee of complete comprehension or a definitive reading. Our spotlight movie this month certainly fits that description. It's David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, which turns 20 years old this year and continues to intrigue and astound viewers around the world. Full disclosure, folks, this is my personal favorite film of the 21st century. I'm going to attempt to evaluate and interpret the puzzle box that is Mulholland Drive in this episode, but I won't be alone. I've recruited two esteemed experts in my sleuthing, both of whom I will feature in back-to-back interviews. So first up is Dennis Lim, Director of Programming at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and author of a book on David Lynch called The Man from Another Place, excerpts of which are featured in the Criterion Collection booklet that accompanies its home video edition of Mulholland Drive. Now immediately after my conversation with Dennis, you'll hear from UK-based filmmaker and writer Chris Rodley, who's the editor of the book Lynch on Lynch. Dennis, Chris, and I are going to travel deep down the Lynchian rabbit hole in our pursuit of truths about Mulholland Drive, exploring why it's worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, how it stood the test of time, and what we can learn from Mulholland Drive two decades later. Ahead of that effort, however, it's our duty to get you up to speed on the who, what, where, when, why, and how details of Mulholland Drive, for which we turn to Wikipedia. Mulholland Drive is a 2001 surrealist neo-noir mystery film written and directed by David Lynch and starring Naomi Watts, Laura Herring, Justin Thoreau, Ann Miller, Mark Pellegrino, and Robert Forster. It tells the story of an aspiring actress named Betty Elms, played by Watts, newly arrived in Los Angeles, who meets and befriends an amnesiac woman, played by Herring, recovering from a car accident. The story follows several other vignettes and characters, including a Hollywood film director, portrayed by Thoreau. This American-French co-production was originally conceived as a television pilot, and a large portion of the film was shot in 1999 with Lynch's plan to keep it open-ended for a potential series. After viewing Lynch's cut, however, television executives rejected it. Lynch then provided an ending to the project, making it a feature film. The half-pilot, half-feature result, along with Lynch's characteristic surrealist style, has left the general meaning of the film's events open to interpretation. Lynch has declined to offer an explanation of his intentions for the narrative, leaving audiences, critics, and cast members to speculate on what transpires. He gave the film the tagline, A Love Story in the City of Dreams. Mulholland Drive premiered at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival in May of that year to major critical acclaim. Lynch was co-awarded the Best Director Prize at the festival. 
Universal Pictures released Mulholland Drive theatrically in the United States on October 12, 2001. The feature grossed a worldwide total of just over $20 million against a budget of $15 million. Lynch earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Director. The film launched Herring's career. It boosted Watts' Hollywood profile considerably, and it turned out to be the last feature film to star veteran Hollywood actress Anne Miller. While Holland Drive is often regarded as one of Lynch's finest works and was ranked 28th in the 2012 Sight and Sound Critics Poll of the best films ever made. It also topped a 2016 poll by BBC Culture of the best films made since 2000. Additionally, it ranked as the finest film of the 2000s among critics surveyed by World of Real. At present, Mulholland Drive garners an 83% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, where its average critical score is 7.6 out of 10. Okay, as John Lennon would say, let's turn off our minds, relax, and float downstream as we soak in the theatrical trailer for Mulholland Drive. What happened? There was an accident. A car accident. From David Lynch, the director of Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet. Could be someone's missing. The girl is missing. from Deep River, Ontario, and now I'm in this tree place. I don't know who I am. That money, you don't know where it came from. Oh, by the way, those two detectives came by again looking for you. Someone is in trouble. Something bad is happening. Now you got me scared. There is no Band. And yet, we hear a band. Silencio. I remember something. What is it, Rita? What is it? What do you see? Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive. That's where I was going. Diane, the car's waiting. You coming? I say it every month, but it bears repeating, especially this time around. My guests and I, we're going to be taking deep dives into the strange world of Mulholland Drive. That's fancy talk for spoilers ahead, so be forewarned that our conversations are going to divulge crucial plot points. If this month's movie remains on your unwatched list, yeah, it's time to remedy that situation post-haste. Stream, rent, purchase, or pull this picture off the shelf and give it an overdue spin then rejoin us at this point in the podcast. Silencio. All strapped in? Let's do this thing. I want to introduce the Director of Programming at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, former film editor of The Village Voice and frequent contributor to The New York Times, and author of a book on David Lynch called The Man from Another Place, Dennis Lim. Hello, Dennis. Welcome to Cineversary, and thanks for agreeing to appear on our podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Absolutely. You were right at the top there in terms of guests I was considering asking for this particular episode, so I'm so pleased that you agreed. So why did you decide to write a book about David Lynch and his films, and what was that experience like, Dennis? Well, I think if you're going to spend time thinking about you know, one filmmaker, 
quite a bit of time and if, if you if you're writing a book ideally that filmmaker would be something of an inexhaustible subject uh and for me lynch is that filmmaker um he's somebody whose films i've lived with and thought about for for most of my life now mm-hmm. and i I feel like they're endlessly rich texts. You know, you can never know them too well. Um, I feel like every time I return to them, I see them in new ways. Um, I find new things there. So uh, Lynch seemed like a logical subject for me. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that even, you know, the book's several years old now, but the process of writing the book did not by any means exhaust my interest uh, in Lynch. I, I still love the films um, and and... I, as I said, I think, I think they are films that re, you know reward repeated viewings, which which isn't true um, of all works of art. I totally agree, Dennis. Uh, that has been my modus operandi in talking to people about Mulholland Drive all these years. I, I tell them, you may not like the movie, but you're just going to get sucked in. It's it's like a wave that engulfs you. And if you give the movie a first watch, give it give it a chance. I almost guarantee you're going to come back to it if you have an open mind about it, because it does reward repeat viewings. That's something that we're in simpatico about. I continually find new and interesting observations, insights, things that I pick up every time I rewatch the movie, and it just becomes endlessly rewarding. Mm. So let's get into it here. Why does Mulholland Drive still matter 20 years later? It's been two decades, Dennis, and, and why is it deserving of celebration? I think all almost all of Lynch's films matter. You know, I think he he's one of the few filmmakers of whom we can say that. And I think he's the rare filmmaker who's had a long career where he's made like, you know, defining works at every stage of his career. I think Eraserhead is a film that still matters. I think Blue Velvet is a film that still matters. I think Mulholland Drive maybe has a special place in in Lynch's filmography because of its very unusual evolution. Um, The fact that it was not intended as a film to begin with that's right. accounts for its very unusual shape structure meaning i think like lynch's most popular works it is a kind of uh, it's the kind of text that encourages you know a kind of participatory engagement with it you as viewers are invited to complete the film uh and i think that's one reason why the film resonated so profoundly with with people at the time. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that the fact that this is how we engage a film, it's a film that doesn't present itself to you in an immediately legible, you know, clear meaning. Uh, it's a film that requires you to do a bit of work as a viewer. You, you're required yes. to, to sort of piece it together. And that's also true, if you think about it, of, you know, Twin Peaks, which I think is maybe the other Lynch work that has, you know, comparable you know, fandom. Twin Peaks is a, you know, a work of narrative art that I think asks more questions, you know, than it answers. And it mm-hmm. allows you um, as a viewer to enter its its universe um, and, and, and to kind of remain there. And, and that is, you know, Lynch, for him, I think he sees these films as spaces to, to linger. You know, and Mulholland Drive is a, is a film that I think audiences have been, have been quite happy to, to stay in for all this time. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So what's your opinion here? Can Mulholland Drive be deciphered accurately? Is there a prevailing reading that most people agree on? Or is this film endlessly open to interpretation? And if so, how do you choose to interpret it or not, for that matter, Dennis? Yeah, 
I think we've sort of settled on a reading of Mulholland Drive. And I think looking back on it, it maybe isn't all that complicated if we're really just trying to describe what happens in narrative terms. Mm -hmm. I can understand why I still remember my first viewing of the film that it is it is confusing. It takes a while. If you if you know going in and knowing absolutely nothing, uh, I can imagine you know a viewer being wrong-footed and confused. I still remember very vividly my first viewing. It was the film's world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. And I did something which I never do, which is I came out of the film and then I got back in line to watch it again, like wow. at, um, yeah. you know, at, at, at the next screening. I think it's one of the films I remember very, very well. I think like most people, you know, blown away and sort of discombobulated not really knowing, I mean, imagine going in without having any sense of what was to come uh, and being fairly confused um, when the shift happened. Uh, sure. And but I, you know, I think starting to piece it together by the end. And mm-hmm. then as I told you, I just went right back into the cinema to watch it again. Amazing. Just you got to, right back on that roller coaster ride. Yeah. <laughs> there was a sense that like there was a little, you know, a bit more work to be done. I wasn't sure if, if my interpretation was 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 fully correct. But I think on a second viewing it clicked it it, it clicked. Um and I think that's true of most of the analysis of the film. I mean mm-hmm. broadly which is that, you know, the final third of the film essentially reframes everything that came before. I mean, there's a basically two planes of reality uh, here. You know, you could say that one is reality and one is dream. I think that's how you would break down the film in terms of its structure. Does everything absolutely add up? Probably not, um, if you look at certain details. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's also by design. I, I don't think Lynch wanted to make this kind of like puzzle piece where everything clicks into place and then there's like nothing left to, to think about or talk about. You know, I think the mm-hmm. film can be understood viscerally and intellectually. You, you can draw correspondences between characters in the first part, characters in the second part. You know, it, mm-hmm. it actually like leads you in the directions of certain, certain interpretations. Uh, sure. But I don't think it clears up every single mystery, perhaps, you know. No. No, and that's part of the deliciousness of the movie is that you may think you have the basic synopsis or plot figured out, but it still raises a lot of questions. I like what you said a moment ago about how a lot of Lynch's films raise more questions than they answer, which to me is the mark of a really talented filmmaker because I like to be intrigued and I like puzzles and things like that. Some people don't. Some people kind of like their entertainment handed to them on a platter that's easily digestible. But for those people willing to go a little deeper, you're going to find a lot of pleasure and satisfaction in the enigmatic qualities of Lynch's work. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think his, for him, that's what keeps the film alive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think right. um, the, once once everything is answered, the film effectively is effectively dead. I mean, you've, again, you, you've, you've exhausted it. You know, I think that there is, you know, you, you've cracked the code, you've solved the puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, all the pieces fit together in this jigsaw. And like, he's never made a film that of which I would say that's true. You know, every film of his leaves uh, mysteries. And for him, that's what keeps the work alive. This is another reason yeah. why he returns to the serial form, the television, to like, you know, the idea of keeping a narrative going uh, is something that's very, very appealing to him. You know, and, and I think even in these self-contained films, he's not interested in, in clearing everything up. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we were talking a moment ago just about interpretation and things like that. I think just for the benefit of the the listeners here, I'll kind of give a basic synopsis based on what's going on here as story-wise. So apparently you have a character named Diane. She appears to be a down-on-her-luck actress. She's been jilted by her lover, Camilla, an in-demand thespian who's fallen in love with someone else. Jealous and hurt, Diane arranges to have Camilla successfully killed by a hitman. Feeling guilty about this and depressed about how her life has turned out, Diane chooses to commit suicide. But just before she dies, Diane has a prolonged fantasy or death dream in which she imagines a more preferred path her life could have taken. One in which she, renamed as Betty, is discovered and appreciated as a naturally talented actress. So in this alternate reality fantasy, Diane as Betty meets a beautiful stranger suffering amnesia who takes the name of Rita, but it's really Camilla who has survived the car crash the hitman planned for her in real life. Betty befriends and falls in love with Rita as the two attempt to break through Rita's amnesia. But as Betty and Rita get closer to the truth and try to unlock the mysteries, including the identity of a dead woman they discover, who's in reality Diane herself, and the secret behind a blue box that suddenly appears, compatible with a blue key that Rita possesses, At this point, Diane both dies and, it seems, suddenly wakes up from this dream within a dream. Then everything gets repeated all over again. She hires the hitman, commits suicide, and experiences the death dream fantasy. In doing research and talking to different people, it seems like this is the consistent through line as far as a narrative It doesn't explain everything, and you don't have to agree. And it's not necessarily a definitive reading, of course. For example, other theories are possible, right? Including that the entire movie is a dream, or that the last third of the film, which most people tend to agree is the reality part, per se, maybe that last third is a dream, while everything earlier is a truer reflection of reality. So did what I kind of synopsize there jive with your sensibilities about the plot or the narrative? Yeah, absolutely. Except the experience of watching the film is very different from what you what you've just described because right. you started with what you assumed was the underlying reality, right? Because but, but when we watch the film, for two-thirds of it, we have no idea that there's any other reality other than what we're watching, which is the story That's of right. Betty and Rita. Mm-hmm. We don't start with Diane and Camilla. We start we start with Betty and Rita. Um, uh, which is, of course, how how Lynch did it, because this was devised as the beginning of an ongoing open-ended television series. It, it's important to our experience of the film that we start in this so-called fantasy. You know that we start in this in this world where there are signs that things are amiss, that they don't quite add up. Um, and I think that's a big part of the experience of watching Mulholland Drive is like you're in this very strange heightened reality, you know, and, and increasingly there are like disturbances in the atmosphere. There's like, you know, the characters seem off, interactions seem off, they're inexplicable things. You know, very early on, there's that very creepy scene at the diner where there's one man recounting to another in this experience of deja vu. And, 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 and then they go behind and there's this like, you know, unexplained monster who is, I think, one of the, you know, one of the most memorable uh, moments in Mahon Drive. And, you know, and how do you explain that I mean, I think you could interpret it in different ways. I tend to take Lynch's Lynch's side on many of these these sort of enigmas. Yeah. I, I prefer to leave them as as experiences. Yeah. But you know, I think the the reason the film is so effective is because we don't know. You know, 
I, I think, of course, the way you describe it is the clearer way to explain the film, to, mm. to begin with what we think are, you know, the real flesh and blood people, Diane and Camilla, and then like yeah. to, to frame Betty and Rita as figments of the, you know, the jealous, grieving, like dying Diane's, you know, figments of her her imagination. But that's not how we experience them. We don't experience them as figments of anybody's imagination. We're required to like sort of live in their world and see it, feel it unravel. And then we are introduced to this other reality of Diane and Camilla. And I think that that order, you know, that the way in which which the film you know, reveals itself to you is mm -hmm. so much a part of why it works. I mean, the scenes that are, I think, most striking in Mulholland Drive are the scenes where like you suddenly things start to fall apart. First of all, I think there's the audition scene mm -hmm. where which is, you know, inexplicable. We had no idea that that Betty was a good actor. I mean, she'd sort of been set up as this, you know, kind of like wide-eyed, right? You know, ingenue type, you know, not very worldly, not very sophisticated. And suddenly, she goes into this audition, and like a whole different person emerges in this. And it's a very, it's a very like funny moment, but it's also like quite eerie uh, and unnerving. And of course, like I think the big sort of fault line of the film, where where it really sort of like breaks apart, is like in this amazing sequence where they go to the club, to the club Silencio. Yeah, and and that's when like, you know, the, the idea of that the reality that we eventually learn is a reality that has been constructed by Diane that cannot hold, that's falling apart. You know, that right. that's when we really feel it without at the time knowing, you know, exactly why. Uh, so which is why I think that the film is, this is so effective. You're so right. On first viewing, you're just thrust into dream logic. David Lynch has thrown you into someone else's dream or his dream or his fantasy kind of here. And it doesn't unfold in a linear fashion. So if you're trying to piece together and decipher things, interpret what's going on in, in a straight line, you have to do it in your own way after the movie's over or seeing it a second or third time or what have you. So you're right. It, while I was able to basically describe a narrative or a plot line, it doesn't really do justice to the overall effect of the movie and how the effect it can have on you emotionally, mentally, etc. Because it's so fractured and it, it again, it follows like a dream logic. It is interesting, though, that we can agree it rewards repeat viewings and therein lies uh, some of the fun of trying to understand the meanings or interpretations. But yeah, do the alternate theories hold any water for you, Dennis? For example, you know, some say that the entire film is a dream or the last third is the dream versus the first two thirds. What do you think about those alternate kind of interpretations? I probably like, again, would agree with Lynch that I don't think any interpretations are wrong per se with mm, a film like this, okay. but I don't yep. know that for me, there's a whole lot of evidence that, you know, I, I would need to be convinced mm. personally to see it that way, because I think you're, I think, led to believe, um, you know, the version that you laid out, which is that one, mm -hmm. I don't know, world A is a fantasy that emerges from world B. Could world B also be a fantasy? Sure. Maybe there's world C, you know, like, I mean, the, I mean, it could be endlessly nested. We don't we don't know. Yeah. But I think the way you're guided to read the film is to read the first part as a projection fantasy, like a wish fulfilling, but also like kind of guilt ridden version of events from one particular point of view, one particular subjectivity. And we're, we're, I think we're led to believe that Di it is Diane's mind that has created the film uh, that we've experienced to the, up to that point. Okay. 
All right. I was curious to kind of tap your brain on that. I love what you wrote in your book about the movie. You said that by applying a fractured nightmare logic to its nominal reality, less realistic than the preceding wish-fulfilling fantasy, Mulholland Drive emphasizes the role of fantasy in giving a cohesive shape to our experiences. So this is kind of what you were talking about earlier, mm. how fantasy can shape our reality or our experiences and putting your the logic aside and, and letting the, the fantasy elements just kind of work on you. It makes the film quite challenging if you're looking for plausibility. Yeah. And I think that's one reason why, you know, we started by talking about Lynch in general in this film being, you know, rewarding and holding up to repeat viewings. And I think this is this is part of it. It's just like the film remains satisfying, even if you have a theory about it, you know, because I think the way you watch the film, it sort of does sort of pull you back into this process of creating narratives, creating fantasy, like, you know, just making sense of things, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that's, that's the pleasure we take in returning to mm -hmm. a text like Mulholland Drive. Even though I have a, you know, I have an idea of what this film is, as do you, I think watching it again, it still encourages the viewer to engage with it in a very particular way. It's like Absolutely. to piece things together, right. you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, that's one, one reason uh, why I think the film, you know, for me, is, it's not a film that can be depleted by, you know, repeat encounters. No question. So I'd like to transition a bit and talk about themes, if you can identify any. So uh, one of the predominant themes, for me anyway, is the dangers of living in an idealized past while ignoring the present, like wallowing in nostalgia, the dangers of fantasizing excessively about better times. Doing so can create a circular cycle of futility in which you keep repeating the same mistakes without learning from them and progressing. So if you apply that to Diane, it would appear that she is, you know, living an idealized past while ignoring the present. And in keeping with this theme, we see symbols of a bygone era, as evidenced by the jitterbug dancing, the hot rod vintage cars, the 1950s style pop songs and singing styles, the Nancy Drew-like sleuthing, the references to the Winkies from The Wizard of Oz, etc. Mm -hmm. I want to read you something that uh, an essayist named Clint Stivers wrote for Senses of Cinema. He said, David Lynch reminds his viewers that we, just like Diane Selwyn, live in a world that has become so cruel and arbitrary that it requires us to create mental fantasies in order to help us construct some sense of identity and unity. Yet he emphasizes the illusory nature of the hope that such fantasies can completely detach us from that world. We need to escape from conflicts, and like Diane, we use memories and the past in creative, phantasmic ways to try to do so. Lynch is not telling us to abandon the pleasure that we take in escaping, but he wants us to be wary. So it's interesting there. Do you buy into this at all in terms of a cautionary tale about living in the past or wallowing in nostalgia in any way? I don't disagree with that, and I'm, I'm, but I... I'm not sure that he would frame it as cautionary necessarily. Mm, okay. He's talked about the importance of like sort of mid-century American you know, iconography to him. He's talked about like nostalgia for an earlier time for his childhood, you know, when things were mm. less complicated. And you see this in all his films. It's almost like, you know, Blue Velvet. You know, it's a 1980s film that had, you know, but the, the, the people in it, are almost acting like they're in a 1950s film. You know, there's almost like multiple, same with the teenagers in Twin Peaks. I am not sure that Lynch is the kind of filmmaker who makes points quite as clearly as that. Or it's just like, you know, here's a warning of the dangers or here's, you know, 
I think he's he's interested in probably both sides of it. Probably like you know seducing you with the pleasures of of nostalgia. Um, and at the same time, sort of like showing it to be a kind of trap. You know, I think he's probably somebody who's aware of, of, of both sides of it and, mm. and presents it that way and relishes this like, you know, yeah, there's lots of in- anachronistic elements and just like strange incongruities. It's almost like Betty has walked into like old Hollywood, the studio set, but also like he's, he's referencing, I mean, there's, it's a film that references Hollywood history. You know, I think that I would propose that as 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 one of the themes of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clearly a film that, that has that makes references to Sunset Boulevard, sure. uh, which is you know an important film for Lynch. I think it makes references to Vertigo. It's his Hollywood film, you know, and 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 Lynch has worked and lived in in, in California his entire adult life in Los Angeles. There there are other films he's made that are set in L.A. and also deal with you know actors and, and and the movie industry but but this is lynch's sort of love hate letter to hollywood i think he he sees it as a, as a machine you know that uses people you know chews them up spits them out but he also is like very much seduced by its beauty its glamour its history yeah well put mm-hmm. totally agree and that kind of is a nice transition to what i identify as a second major theme that life can be cruel, unfair, and arbitrary, as has often been experienced by aspiring actors who head to Hollywood with dreams of making it big, only to be rejected, ignored, or disillusioned. Even those with real talents can be denied a fair shot due to you know, a rigged, profit-driven system run by shadowy, powerful, patriarchal forces who impose their will on underlings. And you see this uh, when you think about the strange visit to Club Silencio that reinforces this notion, we witness the MC explain how everything we view and hear is an illusion, a recording or a tape, which is also true of films, right? I mean, it is an illusion. We watch an immensely gifted artist sing like an angel, but then what happens? She collapses from apparent strain and frustration, mm. only to hear her voice continue singing after her mouth stops moving, and then she's dragged away. To me, this suggests that even talented actors and artists are often underappreciated, ignored, expendable, or taken for granted by the, quote, men behind the curtain, unquote, the patriarchal powers that control a place like Hollywood. So we view Betty and Rita crying and being moved by both the talent they've just experienced and the sadness behind the truth that artists particularly females, are treated as a disposable commodity used to entertain the masses in an artificial environment. What's your take here, Dennis? Do you put any stock into this possible thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I think it connects to to, to what we were just discussing. I do think this Mm -hmm. is his film about Hollywood, and you're right that I think he, you know, he sort of foregrounds like the you know the actors especially the actresses sort of um you know predicament uh in in making it in a patriarchal misogynist world in which they are objectified this is a film that's haunted with dead bodies i mean like you know he's wanted to make a marilyn monroe film before you can see you know the ghosts of, of sort of old hollywood hovering over this this film it's not just about actresses and and, and of course there's, there's a long history of actresses who meet unhappy ends in, in hollywood it comes from his personal experience, despite being, you know, I think um, a very popular and important figure in American culture. He's somebody who's never, ever in his entire career had a happy relationship with the industry. Mm. And I think that goes all the way back. I mean, Eraserhead was uh, like a DIY film that he, you know, 
basically made himself piecemeal over many years. But then as soon as he starts working within the, the studio system, I think there are difficulties almost constantly. You know, Dune being uh, at the time, I think one of Hollywood's most you know, notorious flops. Um, Mulholland Drive itself, of course, you know, comes from this, you know, flirtation with network television that, of course, you know, and it, it's only salvaged because French financiers come in and, and, and give him the money to make this in, you know, into a film. Right. The film he made after this one, he's only made one feature after this was Inland Empire, a film that he made uh, much like his first film, The Razorhead, you know, by himself without any interference with you know, complete control over, you know, every single aspect of the film, even though he's, he's channeling it through the story of Betty slash Diane, I think he's drawing on some of his own unhappy encounters with the Hollywood machine. I think you sure. see that in, in sure. the men behind the curtain, you know, insisting on, you know, the, the making casting decisions or these like, you know, ominous men and like that he's sort of satirizing, you know, and I, I think that that comes from, um, a very personal place for him. No question about that. Another theme maybe didn't touch on, which is this idea of reenactment, of rewriting the past. Okay. She's rewriting, you know, the, her life. She's mm -hmm. rewriting what happened. And of course she fails because, you know, it ends with her and us being plunged back into a reality after her fantasy dis disintegrates. Yeah, Dennis, it's almost like she's trying to cast her own movie mm -hmm. here or make her own movie in her mind. The danger, of course, is life is not a movie that you have control over, mm -hmm. and you shouldn't try to cast yourself and those you love in different roles to, let's say, escape who you are and who they truly are. You know, Diane, she attempts this break from the anguish and the suffering she's feeling, but she soon learns it's a futile exercise. So I totally get where you're coming from with this. That's also the theme of Vertigo, which is a film that I know is important to, 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 mm -hmm. to Lynch, you know, in which um, this act of remaking replication fails i think that's also what happens in twin peaks the return i mean the film i don't the, the series ends with you know the kyle mclaughlin character trying to rewrite the past and i think this is this is like actually like an increasingly dominant theme in lynch's work you know this desperate desire to reenact and to rewrite and how that you know how that's doomed to failure Absolutely. All right, Dennis, this is a birthday celebration, and birthdays are all about giving presents or getting presents. I always contend that it's the fans who continue to get the gifts here. So what is Mulholland Drive's greatest gift to viewers? What would you say? I think we touched on this a bit already, which is that, you know, being a film that doesn't um, exhaust itself through multiple um, exposures is, I think, a very rare gift for a viewer. Uh, it's a film that I would happily return to. I don't know. There are many things. I mean, these extraordinary performances in it. And this is the first time any of us had, you know, encountered Naomi Watts. We had no idea right. who she was. And I think just, just the way she you know, embodies Betty and then Diane. Is, uh, it's such a difficult role yeah. because, again, you're, you're playing multiple personalities, multiple characters. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, you know, when Lynch first shot the first part of Mulholland Drive, the film, which was Mulholland Drive, the TV pilot, she was playing Betty, you know, and then this whole thing that he he wrote after the pilot wasn't picked up, after he decided to like, you know, turn this into a self-contained film. And she's given a whole new part. Amazing. She's got to transition quickly to the changing nature of the story. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's made at a time, I think, where, you know, we were sort of mourning the loss of Hollywood as we knew it. Um, you know, I think Hollywood today is is really unrecognizable from from the Hollywood of 
certainly the Hollywood of like Billy Wilder and Hitchcock that Lynch is referencing, but also even from 2000, 2001, I mean, I don't, I don't know, Hollywood was not devoted so <laughs> completely to franchises and comic book adaptations and CGI. And this is a film about, about cinema. So I, I think that that accounts for its its appeal too. you know, the sort of this turn of the century, turn of the millennium moment where we were just like, you know, I think I remember like you know, many discussions about like, are we at a crossroads for the art form, you know, like digital mm-hmm. is on the horizon. So I think it represents maybe the era had already passed by the time Lynch made this film, but it's 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 a kind of end of an era movie. That makes sense. Yeah, for my part, I believe that Mulholland Drive has a few greatest gifts. Its first greatest gift is its ability to completely immerse you in a surreal universe where logic, linearity, lucidity, they go out the window, right? You're forced to surrender your control to one artist's unique vision and let the film just wash over you. It's like a dark pool, Dennis, that calls out to you seductively, maybe a siren song saying something like, take a chance, abandon all caution and plunge into me. And once you do that, to fight against the undercurrent is folly. It results in exasperation, weariness, disappointment, because you can't make this movie fit neatly in a conventional box that can be filled, measured, weighed, understood, according to the supposed laws of cinematic physics, let's call it. If you want to better comprehend and appreciate Mulholland Drive, again, active viewership is kind of required. But these goals are best achieved during a subsequent screening, not necessarily on the first watch. I think that virginal viewing of Mulholland Drive the first time should ideally be a much more submissive exercise Mm -hmm. in which you absorb the visuals, the tone, things like the disquieting unreality of the experience, leaving you to piece together the intriguing fragments later, if you choose to, after the film fades to black. That's my advice to people I recommend the film to, and it's not always a wise recommendation because, you know, half the time people come back to me with frowns on their face like, no, I didn't really dig the movie. (laughs) So you got to be careful who you recommend it to, of course, too. But what an enthralling experience it is when you can interlock some of those disparate puzzle pieces to form a more complete picture. What a great two-in-one gift that is, the power to at first engulf you in its many ambiguities as a passive partaker, and then the power to encourage you to be an engaged psychological detective, if you will, trying to solve the film's metaphysical mysteries. Every time I get off this crazy, twisted roller coaster ride that is Mulholland Drive, Dennis, I feel both unsettled and thrilled, and I can't wait to get back on the ride, ever yearning to you know, understand how they so effectively engineered this seemingly impossible thrill. The incredible twists and turns and loops and dips that make this ride so thoroughly satisfying. So that's kind of how I equate it, almost like a thrill ride. That, yeah, it could be scary, it can be disturbing, etc., but that's what a good roller coaster ride is to me. Yeah, endless gifts that we can pour over here, but those are the ones that stand out for me and you. So appreciate your perspective on that. Where does Mulholland Drive rank for you among Lynch's work? So how would you kind of rank this in his filmography? Pretty high. I think as a film to return to, probably maybe the one I would come back to the most, um, Mm. just because it's, you know, it's just pleasurable. I mean, there's just individual scenes, you know, to 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 mm-hmm. that you could just sink into. Although I, I I think I have a soft spot for for Blue Velvet, um, sure. which was you know the mm-hmm. first one that I encountered. Um, I think Lost Highway is a very important like turning point film for for Lynch when he starts to do sort of more 
unusual things with narrative that he continues here. You know, I do think that the the crowning achievement. I mean, I think the greatest. The, it's not even a film. I think it's. I think the most recent iteration of Twin Peaks, a third the, season, the, the return. The return for me, the way it builds, the way it ends. The sort of freedom that he has as a you know as an as an older man now I think completely unburdened by you know this he had complete freedom to do what he wanted um, he took his time uh, I think there's something about the return that for me makes it his greatest work. Wow. So what does the future hold for Mulholland Drive, Dennis? Who's going to be watching, studying, or talking about this movie in, let's say, another 20 years? What's your quick prediction? I think the film's place in, in film history is, is pretty secure. I think Lynch's place is as well. I mean, he's somebody who is incredibly influential without having spawned many successful imitators because he's so distinctive. I think it is one of his beloved films. And yeah, I think this is already in the canon. You know, it's a film that we will acknowledge as one of the great American films. Yeah, it's already been kind of ranked or esteemed or voted by many high in the circles as perhaps the greatest film of the 21st century or at least the uh, 2000s right up there. So I I agree. I think that uh, it's only going to rise in estimation in the coming years and decades because people want challenging narratives. They don't want, you know, things handed to them on a platter anymore. They want to be active viewers and participants. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Dennis, are there any projects you're currently working on that listeners should check out? Are you working on a book or something for the center? Sure, I can mention a couple of things. Um, at Lincoln Center, we are presenting the New York Film Festival, which starts okay. on September 24th. Do check out our schedule. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this year's lineup. And I am working on a small book, which is um, part of a series by a publisher called Fireflies Press. And they pair 10 writers with 10 films from the 2000s. And I'm writing a book on it's a Korean film um, by the filmmaker Hong Sang-soo called Tale of Cinema, which I think is a very underseen, sort of underappreciated work. Um, and uh, that, that'll be out next year. Fantastic. Thank you again, Dennis, for taking the time to talk with us and wax poetically and theoretically and philosophically about Mulholland Drive. We really appreciate you being here on Cineversary. This was, uh, this was fun. It was really good talking to you, Eric. Thank you so much. Gratitude without platitudes to Dennis Lim for breaking away from a busy schedule and conferring with me on Mulholland Drive. And just a footnote, if you've not yet read his outstanding The Man from Another Place, put that on your to-do list. It's a worthy read. All right, next up is my interview with writer and filmmaker Chris Rodley, which will be a bit different from the Q&A you just heard with Dennis. Whereas Dennis and I attempted to decode and theorize more about possible meanings and themes in Mulholland Drive, Chris and I are going to talk more about his experiences interviewing David Lynch for Chris's book and evaluate Lynch overall as an artist. So here's hoping you enjoy our chat just as much as I did. It's my pleasure to introduce UK-based filmmaker and writer Chris Rodley, editor of the book Lynch on Lynch, comprised of interviews conducted between Rodley and Lynch, including a section devoted to discussing this month's anniversary film, Mulholland Drive. Chris, welcome to Cineversary, and thanks for agreeing to appear on our show. Glad to be here. Oh, it's such a treat. What was it like interviewing David Lynch? How were the interviews conducted, and how would you describe that experience? It's strange because the Mulholland Drive interview was for the update of the book that was originally published in 97. That's right. And so it's a two-stage answer in a way. I mean, when, when we first did, when we did all the interviews for the first edition of the book, 
um, which was only up to um, Lost Highway. So he, I called him, I, I can't remember, the, but you know, he just, he, he agreed to do it, which was good. I actually just said, Chris, it'll be a blast. And so I thought, well, okay, so we'll go. Um, so I went, so, I mean, I done, I did a lot of reading and a lot of research. Believe me, I looked at, you know, ton, hours and hours and hours. And on the plane going over to LA, I decided to do a bit of extra swatting from a book um, about David Lynch written by Michel Chion. Fantastic book, I was completely riveted. Very quickly, it became clear that that was it. I mean, that when I sat down with David, I wasn't going to learn anything about the meaning of the film. He wasn't going to tell me about the meaning of the films or, you know, he, what he was going to talk about was kind of practicalities and all kinds of other things. Sure, so sure. very quickly, I, I had to kind of rein in mm -hmm. because everything I'd read in Michel Chillon was just for between me and Michel Chillon and um, <laughs> it was, really wasn't going to happen. So. We just met every day for many, many days. We we both smoked quite a lot at that time. I was a forty a day guy, and I think he. So in, we just filled up ashtrays and drank tons of coffee. Um, that's and it was delightful. I didn't learn much about the films actually. What I did learn about was a whole load of other things. I learned about his approach to how he makes films. I learned about his life. I learned about what he likes and doesn't likes doesn't like. Um, and I learned more about kind of what it is to lead a kind of art life. I had a fantastic time. I didn't want to come back. I, I blew my entire advance, which wasn't very much, I have to say. I blew the entire advance just hanging out. Um, I, I really didn't want to leave. I used to love going in there every day and smoking and drinking but coffee. what an and experience, though, and what a privileged opportunity, because, again, uh, you know, uh, David Lynch is very tight-lipped about talking about any of his films, especially when it comes to interpretations or analysis. You can't analysis. talk about the films. You can't talk about yeah. the films. You have to talk about other stuff. That's right. you got to work around the edges with him, right? Yeah, you get you get rounded. So you've got to be a little bit clever, mm -hmm. um, although I think he's really clever, but in a kind of visceral way. Um, so you can't go in with the kind of intellect and the kind of, oh, tell me what, you know, he put his seed in me means in Blue Velvet, you're wasting your time. Uh -huh. But it was fantastic. But, I, you know, I, I recorded about 40, I don't know, 40, 50 hours. Wow. It was a lot um, when I finally left because I couldn't really justify staying any longer. And I um, assume you edited it down to the most essential nuggets from the interview. Yes. Right? Then when it was done, sort of done and delivered to Faber and Faber, we were obliged con contractually, although I don't think David's his contract, but anyway, uh, we were obliged that he would have kind of, he would read the galleys and make them, um, you know, have, have some input. Mm -hmm. So he actually called me up and, um, you know, he just said, Chris, I think we should call this horse shit on horse shit. Uh -oh. uh, he ended up cutting about 14 pages. I mean, he hates doing this stuff. You have to understand, he really doesn't like it. He hates mm -hmm. it. Okay. Interestingly, the 14, most of those 14 pages were actually all the stuff about transcendental meditation and kind of, interestingly then, I don't know why, I think he didn't feel comfortable about talking about it or about how it related to his work. So all that came out, which of course now is all he talks about. Mostly. That's right. I was going to say, I mean, he made an about face there. I mean, I don't know what happened, but he didn't want that stuff in. Thankfully, though, most of the interesting things about Mulholland Drive, which we're talking about today, 
remained, it seems, in your final draft. Well, I know, but I think that when I went back for the second bunch of interviews, mm -hmm. um, having experienced what it was like first time around, it was a lot easier because I knew what to expect. Yeah. That I shouldn't go in there with kind of theories and um, my idea about what it meant and blah, 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 so which I didn't do. So, and we were sort of a bit more like friends then. A bit. Okay. You so knew it, the drill by that point, right? Yeah, kind of. By then, it was more like, oh, here we are again. You know. And um, we'll do. We'll still carry on smoking and drinking coffee, and <laughs> so it was a lot easier the second time round. As long as you didn't say what's it about, right? Don't even don't even do that. You painted a very interesting picture there. We appreciate that. But it's time to really start digging deeper into the film at hand here, Mulholland Drive. Sure. Let's get into it, Chris. When and where did you first see the movie? I mean, why is Mulholland Drive important to you as well? I first saw it on its the first night. Opening night in London, which was in a cinema called the Odeon, it was the Odeon Hay Market, just mm -hmm. off Piccadilly Circus, opening night. So, of course, I went because I knew him and I'd, been, I'd done the book. The interesting thing about that opening night is that it's, it was about a 400-seater cinema. Mm. You recognized or knew, personally knew, everybody in that cinema. Oh, wow. Who was there? So, mm. oh, there's this person. There's, most of them, some I knew. But pretty much everybody was a kind of famous person, which mm -hmm. tells you a lot, actually, about that film and that director. It, but the opening night, any, everyone, it was anyone, was there. But what was the impact on you? Like, you walked out of there, and what were your first impressions of the movie? Well, I think there are two things. First of all, because I had a bit of knowledge because I'd done the book, I, I knew that it had been, was, had been originally supposed to be the first episode of a TV series. Mm. So... There's one thing about, you know, I think for Lynch and like everybody else, when you start, I presume, I've never done it, when you start a TV series, you don't know where some things are going. So you say, well, we'll, we'll do this, we'll do that. You, know, you don't know because you know that you're going to, you hope you're going to have some time to develop those ideas, but you have right. no idea when you plant them where they're going. So first of all, I was amazed because I knew the script for that f first pilot was circulating, which I know upset David a lot. Um, it was just, you know, the first hour long script and it was, it was going around. You could get it. So when you see that and think, well, actually somehow the miracle of this film, one of the miracles is it somehow takes something which, which he had no idea, you know, he thought he might maybe it'll have two or three series to develop. Uh -huh. Somehow he's managed to, cause it's been cut off at the knees and some idiot at ABC, I can't remember his name said, you know, he had to stand up and walk around because he, he was going to fall asleep. It was so boring and slow. Right. And Lynch goes into detail about this in your interview, which is fascinating. Yeah. You've somehow got to get back. You've got to get that original footage, which, of course, they'll sell you back because they're so greedy and stupid. And you've got, But you've got to make that take account of itself over two hours, yeah. something that was going to go for, like, hours and hours. So that was a miracle. Yeah, exactly. So really, like, I can make this take account of itself. You have to think what, where was that going? What, you know, and that's, you can see it actually. The first, uh, sort of the first hour of the film is a bit different than the second. Sure. Hour. Yeah. And it, it just so works out that it organically kind of meshes in terms of a, a, maybe a theme or multiple themes of the film. But you, knowing the backstory, of course, going in, can easily recognize, yeah, that was for the pilot. That was for the TV show. And this is how he salvaged that. I know that's a bad word, but no, it's not. No, it's 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 more than a salvage. You know, it's 
it's that's thinking on your feet you know mm -hmm. it's like um resourcefulness that great houston movie treasure of the sierra madre you know where they're panning for gold what they don't realize is that the gold is actually under their feet the great right. thing about that film is they don't realize they've got the gold it's under their feet but they don't recognize it and same with lynch the thing about recognizing where the gold is that you've got it actually you don't have to have some projection what where that gold might be okay. you're actually standing on it that's the brilliance of that but again just taking the movie unto itself yeah what was that experience like the first time for you i think what i love about mulholland what i loved is that when i when i realized that the movie starts inside a fantasy that's not the story that's diane selway's fantasy it's not the story. So mm. that fantastic relation actually been thrown right into the middle of a dream. It's not that it's not real. Of course, it's very real, but it's not the story. It's well, it's a story that she's made. So Lost Highway does that. I think it's maybe they're, they're very similar. They're kind of little duo there that you get. Basically, what you've got is a kind of story about someone who's done something very bad and they don't know how to deal with it so the, the way they deal with the way their brain deals with it is that the, the brain creates another reality for themselves in order that they can cope with what they've actually done mm -hmm. and it's a fantastic idea really it's it, it, truly you know it's so not banal so i like that because i felt i was really right in the middle of a dream you know you don't get you just really that's a rare thing i think you know you don't often get the chance to be inside something that's just pure kind of um, imagination it's a good point i mean it, it just immerses you right yeah he taps into the subconscious mind better than any filmmaker perhaps uh, other than like Bunuel, some of the surrealists but yeah i i totally get it's what you're banal, saying yeah. but it's true you feel it you think mm -hmm. oh my god you know, mm -hmm. i felt that that's horrible i think i think when he got a lot of letters from girls who've been abused by their fathers or writing to him after uh, after seeing Twin Peaks and saying, how did you know that that's what that's like? Mm. You know, as a teenage girl who's been abused by her father, how do you know that actually you get a kind of killer Bob situation where you, in order to cope with the fact that your father is abusing you, you turn them into something else? Yeah, it's interesting because, right, because he's not you know trained as a psychiatrist or something like that or a sociologist, but I think there's something to the power of transcendental meditation. I've tried it. I'm not an avid user. I'm not going to, you know, BS people here. But, you know, if you practice that regularly, I think that you're able to conjure up ideas and creative notions so much better. And I think that there's something about your aptitude by which to kind of summon that, even though it may not be your experience. So I don't know if I could put my finger on it, but I think that that probably lent itself in terms of David's ability to, as you put it, you know, tap into that, even though it may not have been his personal experience. I mean, you've got to be you've got to be practicing something if you're so scared of as many things as he is. And it's so fascinating, the, the canvas that he chooses to paint, if you will, metaphorically, dark visions. You know, very disturbing visuals. I mean, he's afraid of lots of things. I, I don't, I haven't really talked to him about it, but it seems to me clear to me and right. clear to anyone who sees the films that he's fearful of pretty much everything. It seems that way, right? Outside the house, he yeah. doesn't even trust electricity because <laughs> he doesn't understand why it comes into your house yes. and why you, what, what's going on. Why is that? There's a plug in the wall. You know, I, such a character. Fear of electricity. Fear. Of, you know, he once said to me, actually, when I was there on the trip, he said, "When you know, I tell you, Chris, when you're driving, if you're if you're at traffic lights mm -hmm. and they go green, don't." 
go because some clown is going to jump the lights, you know, and you're going to be dead. Oh, it sounds like a movie that didn't happen but should. <laughs> sounds Constant like a Vice, film that we didn't see yet. You know, to be frightened, pretty much yeah. frightened of lots of things. And who isn't, you know? I In am. so many ways, he's he's a fantastic horror director. You know, you don't necessarily yeah. pigeonhole him into but a But it's category. the real horror, isn't exactly. it? It's not, it's, right. not, it's not contemporary horror. It's the real, real yeah, horror. Yeah, it's, it's horror of the mind. It's Absolutely. a fear of what, you know, it's not the ghost. Nope. It's the haunting. Exactly. If you never see the ghost, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. If you feel haunted, that's all that counts. So I want to dig a little deeper and just ask you, why is Mulholland Drive worth celebrating 20 years later? Why does it still matter? And how has it stood the test of time? It matters because one thing, dreams don't date. Mm-hmm. Dreams are always as they were to you. So I think it's a kind of dream. So it's, not, it's, not, it's not possible for it to date, I think. It's always going to be as un- disconcerting and weird forever because that's the thing about dreams if you've had a scary dream if you try and describe that to someone it's not scary they look at you like what's scary about that yeah. mm-hmm. because it's not possible it's not a words thing so it's a feel you know and you feel it so i think the experience of watching the film can't date or change in a way but it'll change but it can't date because it's like a dream and it's not going to it's not going anywhere yeah that's so interesting you're right and plus mm. it, it really can't be copied or emulated in the same way or even similarly so uh, in other words there's not going to be a bunch of knockoff films about you know based on Mulholland Drive so no, thank god um, yeah the, the freshness and uniqueness of this will continue to stay kind of evergreen I think based on what you were saying and therefore the horror and and the disturbing aspects of it the dreamlike nightmarish quality I think to your point, it's not going to fade over time. These are visions and feelings and emotions that can be experienced by new generations of movie watchers. And they won't necessarily say, oh, yeah, I've seen this done a million times by these other filmmakers. You know what I mean? They they definitely would. I mean, I think, you know, can it be deciphered accurately? There is no accurate um, reading of Mulholland Drive. There's, Mm. There's not one simple description. Mulholland Drive, you know, if you wrote it down as a plot synopsis, if you you or or I or anyone had to write down this happened and then that happened, you couldn't make sense of that unless you started to make some personal judgments about what you thought you were seeing. Otherwise, it it wouldn't actually make sense. Yeah, it it does defy logic. I did attempt to do what you just said, which is kind of summarize the plot (laughs) just for myself, just to see if I could organize it. And I'm not saying that my interpretation is the only or the correct one at all. Of course, I'm open to different readings of the film myself. I did attempt that exercise, and it was helpful just in terms of trying to piece some of the fragments together. Sure. But let's face it, you can't come away with a complete definitive picture of yes this is what it's about this is the explanation no i mean i think here's my explanation some you know a a naive lovely girl who wins a jitterbug dance wherever in deep river has a you know goes to hollywood she's lovely she um falls in love with another actor camilla yeah camilla she falls in love with her unfortunately the the girl she falls in love with is also uh, you know an actor like she she's a wannabe actor Mm -hmm. gets the parts um, she also gets the man inexplicably. She announces she's going to, you know, marry a director, her director. So she, so professionally, she's a rival, and poor Diane loses. She loses on the love front. So she takes out a hit on her, um, says, "We'll kill this woman." You know, I want to get her out of the way, but then can't deal with the fact that she's ordered a hit on her. Hopes to hell that she's failed. 
that the, maybe the hit didn't really happen, but actually doesn't, isn't really sure whether it really happened or not and can't deal with her own guilt about ordering a hit on her girlfriend and shoots herself in the head. Gone, dead. That's the story. But that's not the film, is it? I mean, that's, no. that's not the film at all. I don't think Mulholland exists as a kind of thing that you watch. You feel it. And it's not really about anything, you know, David isn't, isn't interested in themes or morals or any of it. So he ha has quoted that kind of oft used phrase of, you know, if, um, if you want a message, talk to Western Union. You know. However, I would, I would say, though, that there are still possible thematic readings of given films, even though the filmmakers, the directors, the writers themselves may be quite outspoken in saying, look, don't try to read into this. I still believe, though, that that's part of what makes a film like this so fun, so rewarding. Yeah. It matters to me because after at least an initial watch, it requires active participation by the viewer. Yes, yes, yes. If you're hoping for an entertaining popcorn movie that doesn't involve much thought and which resolves itself by the conclusion, you're likely going to be disappointed by Mulholland Drive. Now, this could be a frustrating yeah. and bewildering experience for many and an intriguing and eye-opening experience for others like me who enjoy trying to solve puzzles and mysteries. And, yes. and Chris, I think it's therefore it stood the test of time because it remains a challenging film to decipher. The narrative structure is nonlinear. Yeah. It features tangential subplots, smaller characters that kind of pop in and out, but don't necessarily mesh with the main story perfectly. The visuals, the narrative, the characters, the situations they have, as you were putting it, like a dream logic, a surreal quality to them. Yeah. So yeah, interpretations can be highly subjective and Lynch refuses to neatly explain things. I think it really matters a lot because it's a movie that rewards repeat viewings. Like that first watch, you just have to let it wash over you. You just have to surrender yeah. yourself to the film because if you're otherwise, you're just going to be drowned in disappointment, like fighting against the current of logic. So, but maybe by the second, third watch, and I've probably seen this movie now 10 times, 11 times, one of my favorites of the last 20 years, absolutely. But it's the repeat viewings that really kind of pay off for me anyway. So the clues to the mysteries, they become more evident. The narrative structure can appear more comprehensible and the fine details come into greater focus. And this is also uh, on the repeat viewings where you start to pick up on the nods to the influences, the inspirations that Lynch you know, sure. hearkened to. Things like sure. Vertigo, Sunset Boulevard, Persona, yeah. Last Year at Marienbad, Altman's Three Women, film noir movies like Gilda. And then you, you think about like traditional narrative storytelling and how this deviates from it. What comes to mind are things like La Ventura, The Double Life of Veronique, Pulp Fiction, yeah. Memento, Donnie Darko, movies where it's not all going to fit neatly in a box. It's not going to be a linear narrative. No. So if you're a cinephile, Mulholland Drive, tell me if you disagree, it's a special treat because it can bring to mind so many other films and types of movies as well. Yeah, I mean, it's all, you know, that movie was made for you and me and people like us, mm -hmm. you know. I think I always, very early on, I realized that, you know, one viewing for most anything isn't enough. So I think that kind of thing of that you need to see it again and again and again and yeah. again and again. That's the pleasure of it. I mean, I, yeah, you know, well, you know what impressed me this most recent watch? This time I really paid attention to how thoroughly entertaining it is. And what I mean by that is when you first think of Mulholland Drive, perhaps you categorize it as dark, noirish, pessimistic, horrific, disturbing. But I was struck this time around, Chris, at how funny so many of the scenes are, especially in the first half. Sequences such as the meeting between Adam and the Castellani brothers, 
one of whom spits out the espresso. Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. It's, it's just, it's pure comedy. The bumbling hitman who instead of, you know, one person, he has to end up killing three people and a vacuum cleaner and triggers the fire alarm. Adam, the pink paint, after discovering his wife is sleeping with the pool boy. The pink paint is just brilliant. And then the mobster thug who punches out the pool boy and Adam's wife. So you walk out of the movie or you turn off the TV and you're kind of unsettled by Mulholland Drive. But really, you were laughing along the way, too. It goes to show David is not a one-trick pony. He's not just, you know, working in the realm of the dark arts. He's a well-rounded craftsman. Everyone wanted to pigeonhole someone. He must be weird, because he makes us think he must be weird. But believe me, he's only weird in that he's actually really living a life, and he's a real human being. And I guess that might be weird now, because he might be viewed as weird. So, Chris, what ways do you think Mulholland Drive was influential on movies or popular culture or set trends? You could make a case that Mulholland Drive paved the way for more puzzle movies, disconcerting psychological thrillers, and nonlinear storytelling in films and TV shows in its wake, possibly. So maybe we don't get works like Black Swan, Enemy, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Lost River, The Neon Demon, Antichrist, the TV series Lost, Or the leftovers, for that matter, without Mulholland Drive's influence in some way. I'm not saying those projects never would have seen the light of day. I'm just saying that I think they're infused with a particular vision that might be invoking Mulholland Drive or David Lynch a bit. I think you're absolutely right. Those things do filter down. It could be that it could be really transparent and boring. Or actually, I think the more interesting thing is that generally speaking, without an avant-garde, the mainstream becomes very anemic. Mm. So... If you, you know, it's always the case that those, the, the kind of what you might term or used to term the avant-garde does filter down. So what Godard was doing, what all those people were doing does actually find its way into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, it just will happen. If that experimentation isn't happening, then the mainstream just becomes anemic and boring. Yeah. And doesn't have anything to offer. So Quentin Tarantino can with Pulp Fiction say, well, I'll just shift, the, you know, but where did he get that from? I think uh, probably from Dennis Hopper's the last movie. I'm not sure. But, you know, so he plays around with it and people think that's exciting. But where does it come from? Not from, you know, it came from somewhere else. Yeah. I suppose you have to take account of the platform. So if you think of Twin Peaks on television, it's have, it might have more of a kind of obvious effect. But I, I, I think it's quite obvious that Twin Peaks changed the, t- totally changed the landscape sure. of television. No denying of it. Forget it. Mm-hmm. You so that's a problem. If you change the landscape unintentionally or whatever, unintentionally, I think, if you then come to do Twin Peaks The Return, what are you going to do? Because you, you've, you've done the big bang, the big bang that changed television. Right. Then what? People were saying, where's the second bang? Mm-hmm. You know, and there, here comes the second bang. And it wasn't the bang they wanted. It just wasn't. Yeah, I mean, you can make a case, Chris, that without the critical acclaim and cult film fandom for Mulholland Drive, and we get it, it wasn't a big commercial success. But again, without that critical buzz and the the cult filmdom, Lynch may not have been given an opportunity to reinvent television 16 years later with the third season of Twin Peaks. I don't know. I think, who knows? But what I do know is that virtually nobody watched it, but... There was a massive uptake on mem- on on kind of subscription. Right. Yeah, but the point is they took another chance on Lynch, yes, even though he's not a bankable kind of name in, in terms of drawing box office. Or but whatever. he's great, though. He's great for your badge, isn't he? Yeah. He's great for David Nevins and whoever the hell it is right. to say, we backed David Lynch. Yep. So if you're like Lynch and you're just the genuine article, he doesn't care. Right. I don't think he cares. No. If he never makes another feature film, you know, when I, when I saw Inland Empire, that last sequence on Inland Empire, I thought that's a goodbye 
goodbye to the movies. I, I, I know it. I've seen it. That's him saying goodbye. I'm going to be doing another loads of other things now, maybe not movies until someone's got the courage to back it. So I think if you're the genuine article, it doesn't really matter if you know yourself. Mm-hmm that what you're doing matters and is good and yeah. interesting. And there's an, that, you know, you're not from Mars. There are, well, some people think he is. There's enough people <laughs> who are similar to That's you. That's too close. He might have to be from Uranus or something. Well, <laughs> yeah, whatever. But you know what I mean? There's enough people like you to watch it and to buy yes. it. You know, you, he's got lots of other things he can do. He's a brilliant painter. He's a brilliant musician. He's lucky. No, I don't worry about David Lynch. But we don't have to worry if Martin Scorsese made a record. What would that be like? I mean, yeah, you right. wouldn't buy it, right? And you wouldn't want to look at those paintings too much cadmium red he's got lots of things he can do and why would he bother why would he bother with these people mm-hmm. because the essence of him is you know is a razor head it took five years there were five people who knew what that baby was and most of them are dead now so his secret is safe <laughs> and stanley kubrick will never ever know how he did that because he's not telling him Good for him. Yeah, so how can a person suggest or describe Mulholland Drive to someone who's never seen it before? Don't! (laughs) But do you have to be careful whom you recommend this film to, to avoid any excess hype or praise? So how do you do that, Chris? Yes, you don't. I mean, it's a problem. I've had some really bad experiences in the past. I think the quick answer to that, if you really, really, really love something, don't recommend it. You're better <laughs> off going online and finding other people who really love it too and going down some horrible pothole. Yeah. Unless you really know them, because if they don't like it, you're probably going to think, do I like you? I don't know. I'm not sure I think I like you anymore. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Are you clever enough? Yeah. Are you, you know, stupid? I don't, I don't, I don't, you know. So, so in my experience, yeah, I mean, in terms of who do you recommend the film to, I'd say half the people I've suggested Mulholland Drive to yeah, maybe they've thanked me for the suggestion, expressed an appreciation for the movie. But the other half, they either don't pull punches in their displeasure with viewing yeah. it, or they don't provide feedback at all, which I also interpret as a negative reaction. So yeah, it's a polarizing picture. What's, right? what's to dislike about that? Okay, I, I know your reason. You didn't understand it, did you? So right. you know, that's really, you know, so what? Well, I think a lot of people like things tied up neatly in a bow by the end of the story, and you're not going to get that here. Chris, are you currently working on anything, another book or another I, I, film? I'm working on lots of things and no one wants to make any of it. One thing I'm really in love with, it's a film about how jazz music at a certain point in the 50s and 60s impacted massively on just about every art form you can think of, all of yes. it. Yes. Well, Chris, I hope that that project gets off the ground because it sounds like a fascinating topic that I would certainly watch. <laughs> I'll let you know. Chris, thank you so much for appearing on Cineversary. This was a real pleasure. Pleasure too. Take care, Eric. A lot of fun there talking with Chris about Lynch and his masterwork, Mulholland Drive. And my utmost appreciation again to both of my outstanding guests this installment, Dennis Lim and Chris Rodley. Let's segue now to Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout out to a website, book, TV program, film, podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to listeners like you. So, for September, my shout out goes to none other than Turner Classic Movies and its attempt to stay relevant and current in an ever-changing media landscape where consumers increasingly skew younger and older films and the platforms that champion them Yeah, they face challenges appealing to new generations. To prevent moss gathering, every network has to rebrand and revitalize once in a while. And TCM is, of course, no exception. So the network has been given a facelift of sorts, introduced earlier this month. So far, fans like me, yeah, we like what we see. 
In addition to updating the sets occupied by hosts like Ben Mankiewicz, the network is now sporting a new logo that emphasizes the C in TCM, with the letter representing the brand's four priorities, which are curation, context, connection, and culture. There's also a new tagline, Where Then Meets Now, and popular shows like Noir Alley and The Essentials are graced by new openings. In a recent interview, Mankiewicz said, What we do is not changing. Showing the films you love from Hollywood's golden age and putting them in context and telling stories about the artists who made them. The only difference is we're doing it with a cool new logo and a spiffy 21st century set, he said. But the films, the directors, and the stars, they're still where they're supposed to be. In your head, in your heart, and on Turner Classic Movies. Yeah, in 2021, it's easy to be cynical about buzzwords like rebranding and marketing initiatives by big corporations like AT&T's Warner Media, which owns TCM. But the truth is that if you love classic films, you have a vested interest in rooting for Turner Classic Movies in this endeavor. It faces a constant challenge on two fronts, if you really think about it. That is, providing interest and value to younger viewers who may be dubious about the merits of older movies, while also not alienating or disappointing baby boomers and longtime loyalists. So I, for one, applaud TCM for facing these headwinds confidently and creatively, and for refusing to rest on its laurels or past reputation. So kudos to the channel for trying to sidestep stagnation and for not bowing to pressure to shelve past films that some would deem to be problematic or irredeemable by today's standards. You keep on keeping on, Turner Classic, even if that means adding shiny new bells and whistles every few years. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a fortune teller to predict what's likely due up next for our podcast. We are heading into October, and of course that means something scary or seasonally appropriate. Make your plans to join us next month to commemorate the 90th birthday of what horror film scholar and historian David Skull calls the most imitated monster movie ever made. It's Frankenstein, released in 1931 and directed by James Whale. Appropriately enough, we have Mr. Skull himself scheduled to join us. So lots of treats, but no tricks planned for the month of Halloween. On Cineversary. As ever, this has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older, 
they're getting sorry i just couldn't help myself there thanks again for giving us a listen Bye.